We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, so what Sheikh was asking me to do was to speak about the experience of students and student life and such. And just to give you just a little bit of background, uh, uh, as, as uh, Sohe mentioned, uh, I am a Muslim chaplain at Loyola. Across the country, there might be as many as 50 Muslim chaplains, um, most of which are, are not paid, and, and most of which are part-time. I'm actually an employee of Loyola University. Loyola is a Jesuit uh, university. Does anybody know what the Jesuits are? Familiar with them? Someone tell me what the Jesuits are. Yeah, so it's a movement of Catholics um, that was formed going back all the way to about the 1500s. And the current pope is also a Jesuit. He's the first Jesuit pope. And they tend to focus quite a bit on, on social justice. Uh, and so that's also the, the, the uh, part of the philosophy of Loyola University itself. And, uh, and so in terms of chaplaincy, the idea of being a chaplain is something that began with the military. So the US military would have chaplains who had the responsibility of, of providing what we would call pastoral care. I was not like him. Uh, pastoral care to the, uh, the soldiers. Uh, and that was their way of dealing with, with trauma long before the idea of trauma and PTSD were, were given much attention. Although I think the military still doesn't regard PTSD as a real thing anyway. But then from there, uh, then we started seeing chaplaincy in prisons to provide counsel for the prisoners, the inmates. And the idea was simply that, all right, if we teach them religion, this can help them get rehabilitated. And then now chaplaincy is entering into colleges. And it's still developing. Uh, uh, I had uh, a Sunday school teacher who, uh, who, who was a chaplain at the local prison. He was a Muslim chaplain at the local prison. This is uh, in the 80s and 90s, and back then I had no idea what he did, right? Except I knew that he did. A lot of people became Muslim through him. You know, mashallah, he's long since passed away. Uh, uh, but the point I'm making is that what a Muslim chaplain does in a university really depends upon the chaplain. There's no formula. There's no specific guidelines or instructions. Okay. Now, I'm going to put that on hold, and we'll come back to that in a moment, inshallah. But I want to first lay out now some other foundational concepts and ideas. One is this question of what we call spiritual. Because with the chaplain, there's often this, this topic of spiritual guidance. Uh, what does spirituality mean? How would you answer this question? Um, anyone? And my style is discussion, so uh, as you see right now. Yes? Okay, so it could be your connection with a higher power. What else when people are saying, I'm spiritual, what else are they saying? Like if someone's, I'm sorry? Prayer. So it could mean prayer or a certain type of prayer. What if someone says, I'm spiritual but not religious? What are they saying? No rituals. Kind 
Yeah, usually they mean something like no rituals, I'm going to do things my own way, all of those things. Now, I don't like this term spiritual, I don't like this term spirituality because it's so vague, it's so ambiguous. So, when people in our society, in our era, are referring to spirituality, it's a number of things. One is a sort of rebellion against rules. So just like mentioning, uh, you know, no rituals and such. So if someone is saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, they are often saying, you know, I believe that there's something beyond. Okay. But these modern religions, like the big five or six, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, they're, they're too either strict for me or they're not relevant in my life, but I believe that there is something beyond. Okay. That's what a lot of people mean. Sometimes it's a rebellion against materialism. Okay. That there's so much focus on what we would in our language say dunya, but in anyone else's language, so much focus on materialism, on status, on success, that I don't find it satisfying, that I need something else. That's also what a lot of people mean when they're talking about uh, being spiritual or spirituality. Another thing that people refer to when they're speaking about being spiritual, this gets more into philosophy, is, is metaphysics. So a lot of the West can get traced back to the Greek thinkers. I mean, there's a lot in between them and now, including the Enlightenment thinkers. But a lot of the West can get traced back specifically to Aristotle. And so Aristotle is setting up all of these categories and so one of his categories is the natural sciences, which eventually become what we speak of when we speak of the sciences, chemistry, physics, and such. And then, and so that forms physics, which is a study of how the material world works, and metaphysics is trying to understand this realm beyond the material world, which is usually behavior. So in the period of the Enlightenment, which is, starts, give or take, around the 1500s, but really gets its high point around the 1700s, there's these Enlightenment thinkers. And one person in the latter part of this, Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, he starts speaking very much about this thing called metaphysics, which is focused more on behavior. Okay. So sometimes when people are speaking of spirituality, they're talking about behavior. Not unlike psychology, but more like ethics. What a lot of people are speaking of when they're talking about spirituality is exhilaration. Like, oh, this was such a, such an, a spiritual experience. And they're basically saying they feel exhilarated. They feel elevated. And I'm saying this both seriously and humorously that it's essentially drugs. Right? that this is uh, the same people who are speaking about spirituality in this way will also speak about things like marijuana. And even one of the terms for alcohol is spirits, literally. And the idea that it's putting you in an alternative mindset. And you'll also find discourse on other drugs. There's a, an undergraduate at Loyola who feels the need to tell me about his experiences with every single type of drug, his study, whether it's LSD or, or, or mushrooms and all kinds of other things. And the idea being that it's, it's an exhilaration and an alternative mindset. Sometimes when people are speaking about spirituality, they don't realize it, but they're just talking about emotions. 
And this is a common case when students are saying, you know, I pray, but I don't feel anything. And so then they feel like they shouldn't pray. What's the answer to that? Someone says, I make my prayers, but I feel like I get nothing out of it. What would you tell them? To keep praying. The fact that you are making your prayers in our lens is spiritual. Because if you're making your prayers purely out of obedience to Allah and nothing else, and you feel like you're getting nothing out of it, the fact that you are obeying Allah is already huge. Okay. So I'm going to suggest to you that when we speak about spirituality, we're actually talking about clarity. Seeing reality for what it is. Haqiqah. It could include these other things. I mean, not the drugs aspect, but it could include many of these other things. But those are not the targets. The exhilaration is not your target. The emotional high is not your target. The target is to get closer to Allah, and part of that process is seeing reality for what it is. Like when you fast. Students will often say to me, I feel like I'm getting nothing out of this. You know, I'm fasting day after day, and I don't feel like I'm getting anything but they will acknowledge that they are thinking more clearly. Okay? And some of that's just purely physiological. Okay? And I'm suggesting to you for consideration that this word that we call spiritual, that I don't like, but I do use, and spirituality in our lens is clarity. To have a clear mind. So this is one of the concepts to think about because a lot of times when we speak of chaplaincy, we're speaking of spiritual counseling. Okay. Uh, next question. When we speak about religion, whether we speak of Islam or we speak of other traditions, what should religion give you? How would you answer that question? Or what are the goals of religion? And we can speak specifically about Islam or, you know, what seems to be common among all the different religions. Yes, sir? Direction and purpose. So it should give you direction. Yeah. Uh, it should give you purpose. What does direction mean? How to live your life. So how to live your life. You yeah. I'm sorry? To know where you're going. So, so to know where you're going. So even when we speak of, of Islam as the straight path, we're saying there's a destination and a way to get there. Someone else. Yes. Absolutely. So Islam and religions in general also should or try to give you some sort of community, an ummah. Okay. And also, especially in our modern context, an identity. And what do I mean by that? That a lot of our Muslim discourse in America is focused on identity. Okay. What does it mean to have a Muslim identity? And the good part of that discussion is, all right, what does it mean to be Muslim? Let's have serious conversations about it. The bad part of that discussion, or the incomplete part of that discussion, is that it leaves out a lot of things, like the fact that the current structure of government in the world today is nation states, which means your actual default identity is American. If you're born here, if you're raised here, if you have citizenship here, or you're going to spend the rest of your life here, your default identity is for the rest of the world is actually American. Okay? In your consciousness, you might be Muslim. Okay? But in terms of your finances, that's American. Okay? You may not do things like interest and such, but your institutions will probably be American. This is something that we'll, we'll revisit. What else? What else should religion give you? I'm sorry? Should give you a way of life. We often say Islam is is a way of life, a way of being. Yes. Uh, like an absolute reference point. It's not just arbitrary. 
Okay, explain that further. Uh, so a lot of times, like, the way we think about ethics or rules, uh -huh. um, they're just man-made, they're arbitrary, and every uh -huh. 50 years they can change. So mm -hmm. religion should provide grounding that for future generations they have mm -hmm. a conference. So, so related to the idea of way of life or guidance or, 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 or a focal point, um, we do believe that there are some things that are absolute. Okay? Uh, we do believe that there are some things that are not negotiable. Right? It's a small list of things, uh, but there are some things that we say are non-negotiable. So. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you, in addition to what everyone has said, and all of your points, much all are correct, I'm going to say one thing that religion should give you, which is sort of like what many of you have said, is guidance on how to navigate life. Okay. Meaning guidance on how to address whatever it is that hits you in life. So... How do you respond when difficulty hits you? Okay. How do you respond when ease hits you? Because okay. we often say Islam, in Islam everything's a test, right? We often don't say how to pass the test. Okay. And so a point to think about that essentially we have four tests that you're going to have experienced in life. Okay. One test, of course, is the test of obedience. How do you pass the test of obedience? You obey or you try to obey. Obeying Allah Ta'ala, obeying the Prophet Sallallahu etc. Another test is a test of struggle. And this is the one that's most relevant to chaplaincy. But how do you pass the test of struggle? You persevere. Sabr. You always keep a good opinion of Allah Ta'ala. A third type of struggle is the test of ease. How do you pass the test of ease? Anyone? How would you answer that? Gratitude. With gratitude. Exactly. Fourth test is when you have to make it difficult. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. A fourth type of test is the test of when you have to make difficult decisions in life. Do I do this or do I do that? Do I go into this career or do I go into that career? Do I marry this person? Do I not marry this person? How do you pass this test? So du'a is for all of them, right? But especially istikhara for this one, right? But the idea being that you make the best decision that you can, and if you determine that you're wrong, you see forgiveness, then you move on. And these four issues are often the most common of, uh, in terms of dealing with chaplaincy, especially struggle. Okay, so one big point we spoke about is what is a chaplain. We said that's open. Another is spiritual. Another is what does religion offer, and that's this point of the discussion. And I'm suggesting in this context, it's how to navigate life. Good. Another question. <clears throat> because chaplaincy takes place in the academy, in the academy I mean the Western University, uh, what would you say are the differences between the madrasa, the Islamic seminary on one side, versus the academy or the Western University on the other side? What would you say are some differences? Yes, sir? Are you taught to critique everything? Okay, so criticism, critical thinking is a big part of this. What else? Average age. Average age. Uh, explain. So what's the average age of one? What's the average age of the other? I think like in the academy or higher studies, we're entering after 18. Okay. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, uh, an interesting point um, that I haven't thought about. But yeah, I'd say there's some truth to that. Yep. Environment. 
Um, what's the difference? Okay so, so, okay. <laughs> okay, so a little bit of difference in, in, in the environment. Yes. Somebody here was raising it. Yes. Um, I know you said this is a very a vague term, but focus on spirituality and awareness versus complete lack of Okay, so we'll say in the mother's side, there's focus on this thing, <laughs> spirituality, religion, in the academy, complete lack. Okay. Yes? Uh, in which one? Okay, in Madrasa, there might be more respect for an authority. In, in the university, there might be almost conditioning to oppose authority, maybe. Yeah. What else? I'm sorry? Okay. So, so <clears throat> in a Madrasa, you have more of a tartib, like first you learn this, and then you learn this, and then you learn this, and then you learn this, right? <laughs> Uh, you have some of that in the core sciences, uh, in like mathematics, but by, uh, uh, but generally speaking, not much, right? So like if I'm in college, you got to take this many core courses, this many uh, major courses, so forth and so on. Yeah. So when we get into the core of the two, I'm going to suggest to you, and by the way, you're all free to disagree with me on anything and everything, right? Uh, and you know, you're welcome to push back, ask questions, by all means, I mean, I'm dealing with undergrads who, that's all they like to do. So, so by all means, feel free to ask and, and push back on anything. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that in the most bare essence, the madrasa is answering one question, and the university, the academy, is answering a different question. The madrasa is answering the question, what does Allah Ta'ala want from me? And how do I fulfill it? The academy is answering the question, how does the world work? So if you are studying Islam in the academy, you're not learning deen. You will potentially read all of the same books, but you are not learning them to see what Allah Ta'ala wants from you. You may not even believe, a'udhu billah, in Allah Ta'ala. But you're studying how does this book work? How does the community practice this book? How does the community organize itself? You keep answering the question, how does the world work? Okay. So the default in universities is the sciences. That's what the sciences are doing. The hardcore sciences are saying the world works, the universe works in a set of patterns. And in chemistry, we see the patterns this way. In physics, we study the patterns this way. Biology, we study the patterns this way. And then you have the human sciences, the social sciences, which are saying humans work in patterns. And so how do they organize themselves, sociology? How do they do their particulars? This is anthropology, like you know, cooking, family life, stuff like that. How do they behave? This gets into sociology. And so it's saying that the universe, or that the humans act in patterns. And everything that doesn't fit the sciences is art and humanities. Right? And even if you're studying art or literature, you still try to make it a science in the sense that, okay, how does the person write? What tools did this painter use? Okay. Madrasa, another, uh, another fundamental difference is you're learning to embody the knowledge. You're learning knowledge to be practiced. In the university, you are not expected to practice your knowledge. You're, uh, you're actually expected not to practice it, to keep yourself, in theory, unbiased. Although, everybody has bias, yes? Uh, 
Yeah, sure. Oh, can you repeat your question? Like you said, you're encouraged not to practice. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> if I'm studying Islam in the university, in the academy, okay. uh, I'm studying exactly the same way that I'm studying French history. Okay. Right? I don't have to be French. Okay. okay. Talking about like the more humanities. Yeah. I mean, I mean, physics. You can't really practice physics, right? But, uh, but the point being that uh, that uh, it's just information that I'm taking in, processing, critiquing to see how all, all this works. Yeah. So, I meaning I've had classes where we studied Puduri, yeah. but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't looking for you know rules on Tahara, rules on Ibadah, or anything like that. It was how does Puduri categorize knowledge, right? How does he organize? Uh, the 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 topics. Where are his sources? What is its place in history? Okay. But no thought among anybody in the class on okay. Uh, how do I do wudu? Okay. It's how do the Muslims do this? Okay. Just like if I'm studying French or you know the history of of you know uh, Buddhism, Shinto, etc. It's, this is how those people do it. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. So we call this embodied knowledge. You're practicing. You're learning to practice. You're learning to teach how to practice. Good. Which then implies something else, the issue of transformation. That the knowledge you have in the academy is informational. But the knowledge of Dean is transformational. The idea being that if I practice this, it changes me for something better. Which brings us back to this point about spirituality that we're saying, the lens that I'm suggesting for what is spirituality in our context, it's clarity. So part of what you're getting as a result of practicing these things is clarity. Clarity, number one, in your relationship with Allah. So another way to think about what I'm saying is that the university is by design a different universe than the madrasa. So now, <clears throat> trying to get a sense of how is the universe, university structured, how does it see itself? The university sees itself as a knowledge factory. So one factory, you might be making cell phones. Another factory, you might be making cars. The university actually sees itself as a knowledge factory. That your goal is to take in this information, do research, and then contribute with more knowledge. Now, the idea of liberal arts education which is sort of somewhere in the foundation of a lot of our ideas, a lot of our universities. When we're saying liberal here, we don't mean leftist. Liberal means free. Meaning you're free to study whatever you want. You're free to have whatever ideas you want to have. And the theory of the liberal arts is that you do get transformation in a different way. How? You come to the university, with all of the, your own ideas, 
your own beliefs, your own superstitions, your own prejudices. And then you come to the forum, which is the classroom or the lecture, and you are now facing someone else's ideas, beliefs, superstitions. And the moment you reevaluate your own ideas, that's learning. And so it's called a university. The idea being universe that you have this whole big wide spectrum of ideas and thoughts. But the focus is ideas, not practice. And so it might seem kind of strange to say, but the university or American society is a very, very intellectual society. It might seem bizarre to say that. But what I mean by that is that the focus is very much on the acquisition of knowledge. And so it's interesting. When you read some books by Aristotle, Aristotle says you should not read this until you're a certain age. Okay? You're not ready for it. Okay? But the idea in the university is, yeah, go ahead, read it now. And so you'll have people who are getting PhDs in Islamic studies who have never set foot inside a masjid, who will not be able to tell you what happens at Jummah, who've never been to Jummah, who've never been into a Muslim-majority country. Okay? But they can tell you with expertise about the Abbasids. Okay? They can tell you with expertise about Islam in a particular region of the world. Okay? Because when you're getting a PhD, you're not getting training in a field as much as you're getting training in how to research a field. Yeah. Whereas when you are going to a madrasa, you're getting trained in how to be Muslim, how to teach Islam, how to preserve Islam, how to perpetuate Islam. Different universe. So this should hopefully make sense for why there were not chaplains before, because there's no need in their theory for chaplains. So what's been taking over the place over the past few decades is one transformation in the university, which seems to somehow be related to another transformation. And this one transformation in the university is that instead of science being at the center, more and more business is at the center. Because the people who are now sponsoring a lot of the sciences are corporations. So go to a place like University of Chicago, which prides on itself, prides itself on pure, pure research. This department is being sponsored by Toyota. This other uh, department is being uh, sponsored by La uh, LaSalle Banks. This other uh, department is being sponsored by other corporations. Okay. So it's this corporatization that's taking place, where business is also taking place, uh, taking over the university. Then on this flip side, uh, a small but growing appreciation that you are more than your knowledge. Not happening as much in state schools. First, it's happening in schools that have church affiliation, because they already have that idea. And so this is now where you're beginning to see a rise of chaplaincy. So any questions so far? about these first big foundational points. I think everything seemed, to, everything seemed to make sense so far. Good. Okay. 
So <clears throat> what are different things that chaplains do across different religious traditions in the universities? The most common is what we would call shepherding. What does shepherding mean? How would you answer this? Sorry? It's kind of like mentoring. You're being a shepherd, right? I mean, it's interesting that our prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so many of our prophets were all shepherds. And why? Why is that interesting? What is part of the career of being a shepherd? So patience, and you have these, I'm sorry? Loneliness. Loneliness, interesting. Yeah, that can definitely be part of this work. No. Uh, you have these sheep that might go in any particular direction, and you have to guide them sometimes very, very gently to go to this direction. Go to the water. Okay. And so related to that is what we call pastoral care. Yeah. <coughs> now, Secondarily, it's the setting up of programming. Programming basically means events. So some chaplains get hired to provide pastoral care, you know, shepherding. Some, some chaplains get hired to provide programs. Okay. Here's classes and such and such. Here's lectures on such and such. Here's other events. But again, the key point is that it's wide open. And to really make this point, uh, most of the chaplaincy programs across the country, including the few that are focused on Islamic chaplaincy, and I have to say this carefully because some of these are my friends, my classmates who run these, uh, I don't think they're actually trained to, to uh, they're not good in training you to be a chaplain. Okay. They give you little topics to study. Okay. Uh, but sometimes you'll learn some topics related to Islam, Islamic thought, Islamic history, a little bit related to social, social services, um, and then now you're a chaplain. <coughs> but part of the issue is no one really knows what a chaplain does. The vast majority of my work is pastoral care. I mean, 50% of my job officially is teaching, so I teach Islamic studies courses academically, and then 50% of my job is being a chaplain in terms of contract. In terms of time-wise, uh, at least 80% is, is chaplaincy. Okay. Now, in most, most, most colleges across the country, the size of the Muslim population is usually, give or take, 100 to 200 students, okay, unless you go to the big schools. So the Muslim undergrad population at Loyola is 800 Muslims. Okay. And probably a good 70% are from Chicago. Then we have a small but significant portion of international students. Most are from the Gulf these days, and it seems to go in waves. When I first started teaching, most were from Turkey. Now the Turkish students have gone somewhere else, and now there's a lot of students from the Gulf, and who knows where it'll be in five years from now. Okay. So now, having said all that, I want to give you a tour of what's taking place in terms of the student, the Muslim student needs over the past few years. I've been chaplain officially now for about three years. Unofficially for a few years before that. And to make a long story short, when I was first hired by Loyola, I was hired to teach, teach Islamic studies in the theology department. And my boss, she herself, she's Muslim, she asked me to get involved with the MSA because she was concerned about the direction it was taking. Okay. Um, 
And a lot of it was just a lack of, a lack of guidance, a lack of mentoring. So I said, fine. And over the years, I got more and more involved with the MSA. And it was reaching the point that students would come visit me for office hours. More often, they, were not, they would not be my academic students. They'd be other Muslims on campus who had their own personal issues and questions. And then they started petitioning the university for a chaplain. Okay. Uh, we want to hire a chaplain. They had a whole petition, a whole binder. This is what we want the chaplain to do. And to make a long story short, eventually they hired me to do this. Okay. I have no formal qualifications as a chaplain. Yeah. Uh, my BA, anybody want to guess what my BA is in? Filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, on the side, I'm also a film critic. Okay, I'm not encouraging you to do that. But yeah. <laughs> Then I have a master's in liberal arts. My thesis was on the Quran. Okay. Then I was a PhD student in Islamic studies. That's been on hold for quite some time. Okay. That's my academic training. Traditional training, I've studied with various scholars throughout Chicago over the course of the years. I've been involved with the Chicago Muslim community for well over 20 years. You know, may Allah tell accept all of our efforts. Those are my qualifications. But they asked me uh, in part because that's who the students wanted. And the key point I'm emphasizing is that okay, there aren't any particular skills. So what's been taking place in terms of student needs over the past few years? The most common issue that students were visiting me with in the previous school year, meaning 2015-16, was anxiety. And I trace, back, trace that back to one specific moment. And this is that moment when those three young people were, were murdered in North Carolina. Right? The three Syrian kids. I think one was a dental student. And in fact, uh, North Carolina just had their graduation and they had like a display um, honoring, honoring him. You know, may Allah, may Allah's mercy be upon them. So from that point forward, why was anxiety increasing? Now that was two years ago. And then the, from that point forward and then the following school year, 2015-16, because for many of the undergrads, they felt that this fear that we've had in the Muslim community that there'd be this spontaneous explosion against us now was beginning. And that was the most common issue even in that following school year, last school year. Every other issue was also there too, meaning everything that you can imagine that takes place in non-Muslim populations takes place in our populations and takes place among college students. Okay. And I'll be touching on those throughout the course of the day, inshallah. <coughs> then when we began this past school year, 2016-2017, the first thing I noticed is that the Muslim population seemed exhausted at the beginning of the year. Usually you begin the school year full of energy. Okay. You're coming back to campus, new, a new year, new start, new beginning, see your old friends again. <clears throat> the Muslim students in particular were completely exhausted. I trace this back to what was taking place last summer. There's the shootings in Orlando. There's bombings in so many places in the world, attempted coup in Turkey, and there's even the bombing in Medina. And part of this exhaustion I'm suggesting for all of us to think about is that we are forced to perform as Muslims in public space. And that is getting exhausting. 
right? That I have to behave in a certain way or I'm conscious of behaving in a certain way, especially if I'm a sister covering my hair because the microscope is on me. Okay. And so I have to be extra conscious of what other people are thinking of me. Okay. Whether this applies to any of you, Allah knows best, but I'm saying this isn't the consciousness I think you'd agree with many Muslims in our society, as well as the consciousness of just being on alert okay. in case you know, someone comes along who is less than polite. And so the students began the year exhausted. And as we got closer to election time, anxiety returned. That the students, I feel like I should have good posture. Okay, so, the, so now the anxiety is even higher because of the direction the election was taking. Yeah. Meaning, in addition to all the bombings, you all know, you all remember the, uh, the rhetoric in the, in the campaigns. And we also had all kinds of issues in the Chicago local elections that I'm sure you had in various parts of, of Texas, too of people who, as you, you and I know, felt that it was in their best interest in terms of their political ambitions to vilify us, to make us look like monsters. And then when we got to election night that November, students were calling me, were texting me, Facebooking me, saying he's going to win. Okay. And that whole evening I was saying, no way, not possible, someone like him cannot win. <clears throat> not going to happen. Okay. And with each hour, the number of students contacting me is increasing, me, increasing, and my response is also increasing, saying, not possible, not going to happen. And then by about 10 p.m., I'm thinking, wow, subhanAllah, it's happening. Okay. And so that anxiety then started transforming into terror. And I was getting contacted literally 24-7, from that Tuesday night, at least through that Saturday night. With students asking what is going to happen to us. And also because of my involvement with the Muslim community in general in Chicago, I'm getting invited to talk to parents, to talk to young people. And young people, I mean grade schoolers. To the grade schoolers, I'm telling them that, all right, Allah Ta'ala does not give you any tests you cannot handle. Okay? Our job is to be the best people that we, are, that we can in society. To their parents and to the college students, I'm saying, I don't know where we're going to be in a year. And we should take this very, very seriously. Because whatever little I've studied of life in Bosnia before you know, the so-called ethnic cleansing, or in Germany before the Holocaust, uh, the similarities are too serious to be taken lightly. And so I've been very frank with the undergrad, saying, I don't know where we're going to be in a year. But Allah Ta'ala guarantees that he's going to hit, what the, hit us with struggle, and he also guarantees he's not going to hit us with anything we cannot handle. Okay. Which means, what am I saying? That whatever institutions we have, whatever wealth we have, all of that is well and good. If you do not have Iman, especially in this time, then you're going to destroy yourself in fear. Okay. And that only works as a suggestion if someone understands that conceptually. So, move forward now to the inauguration, and students are coming to my office literally crying. What's going to happen to us? And the population, so Loyola, in, or Chicago has every single type 
size, shape, Muslim, every, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic um, uh, level. You know, mashallah for all of that. Um, but the students who seem to be getting affected the most are the Syrians and the Bosnians. The Syrians, because of what they've seen happen in the last five years or so, and my Bosnian students who are saying this is happening again. We came to America to escape this, and now it's happening here. And so, literally crying. Yeah. And a lot of my work, and we'll get a lot to this in more detail, step by step, inshallah, is, is consoling them through the lens of Iman. And different people are coming with different understandings, different levels of Iman, so you have to address them according to what they can understand. But then when we move to February, March, the most common issue was struggles of faith. And I'm making it sound like cause and effect, but I'm not sure it is. But in February and March, there's been a huge surge of students coming to me saying, you know, I don't know if I believe in Allah. How do I know that there is an Allah? How do I know Islam is the truth? How do I know Islam is the only truth? So far and so on. It's like over and over and over and over again. It was actually kind of strange. Because I've had students with these questions throughout all the years, but now this has just skyrocketed. February and March. April, an increase of suicide ideation. By suicide, well, what does suicide ideation mean? Sorry? Yeah, meaning students saying, you know, why live? I should just end it all. Okay. Yes? Violent or nonviolent? So by ideation, they're not necessarily talking about how. Um, except for the fact that okay, I don't want to live anymore. Okay, so it's in words basically not the lashing out. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in talking with other chaplains, uh, meaning non-Muslim chaplains on campus, this is, seems to be a problem across the country. Meaning, in the campuses in Chicago, there have been multiple suicide attempts. And so that includes people who, who climb to the top of a building or a parking garage wanting to jump, uh, people taking a ton of pills. Yeah. Uh, but then there's one janazah that I had to do, and it's believed it was a suicide. Family did not, didn't want to do an autopsy, and so, you know, um, Allah knows best. But in terms of how the students, his classmates, his friends were describing, uh, a lot of people believed that it was a suicide and he drowned. So that's what's been taking place in April. Now in that issue, some of it I am connecting with what's been going on. And the sentiment I want you to think is that you're here, mashallah, to help grow the deen. You're here to help grow your own hearts. But what I'm witnessing on campus may be representative of the whole you know, community in America, may not be, is the opposite, is disintegration. But I also think in the case of the suicide discussion, there's another, we're still trying to figure out what are our causes here, but another is this Netflix TV show. You know which one I'm talking about? 
You all know about it, 13 Reasons Why. You know. I, I've never watched it. Any, has anybody watched it? Yeah. I know you're not going to admit in front of Sheikh that you watched it, but yeah. yeah. You watched it, you said? Okay, what did you think? Like, yeah, it's very intense. Yeah. Where, like, you commit suicide to get revenge. No. So, so to, to give you a summary of what the show is, it's called 13 Reasons Why, and the story is about a high school girl who has committed suicide. And each episode of the 13 episodes is following a recording she's made. She's made 13 recordings explaining 13 reasons for why she has taken her life. And each of these reasons is related to somebody something that somebody did to her, okay? And either these are cases where people have done harm to her, okay, or people have abandoned her when she was in need, yeah. And so I've even been reading some, some writings by psychologists and stuff who are also connecting this, saying that the show is kind of irresponsible. Speaking again from, Muslim, from film critic side, uh, one of the problems of the show is that it turns suicide into a moment of drama. And thus it romanticizes suicide okay, by making it a dramatic point. Just like if you watch an action film, somebody gets killed. Okay, and then we've seen it so many times we forget, okay, a haram has just happened right in front of my eyes. Right? That a killing will be a dramatic point. Okay? A stealing will be a dramatic point. Here, suicide is a dramatic point. It's literally the climax of the show. Okay? She's already killed herself, but then they show her killing herself. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, I had no interest in watching it, but then I watched it in the past week or so, past week, two weeks, to see, okay, what's, what's, uh, what's all the hype? And literally, as I was going through the end credits, then I got another text, 10 o'clock at night on Sunday, saying, you know, uh, I was, I'm, I'm contacting you, I'm friends with such and such, and I'm really, really struggling, can you contact me tonight? Okay. And that's how common these things have been. Not on any fixed schedule, of course, but something is happening in our society and something is happening in our community related to just all of these young people who want to end themselves. Because I'm still skeptical that a show has that much power unless it's unleashing something that people already have inside of them. So that's been a survey of what's been taking place. Nevertheless, on the bright side, other things have been taking place in strange ways. You know, one thing uh, about American life is that you're conditioned to protest, usually protest against your parents. And think about all of the television shows and movies you've ever seen. Uh, I hope Sheikh doesn't mind how many references I'm making. <laughs> all the television shows and movies you've ever seen, count how many times you can see a father character who's a positive character. Name any. Sorry? Leave it to Beaver. Okay, so we just went back 60 years. Okay. Yeah, he was a positive character. Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil, which is so interesting because that's probably why students wanted me to be their chaplain because they see me. Yeah. I, get two, I get two things. I get Uncle Phil and I get Sooch Knight, right? You know who he is. So... I'm sorry? Not Will's the Fresh Prince, his, his, uh, yeah. his uncle, yeah. No, but not, you don't want to think about... Oh, his real father. Real father. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Uncle. uncle, yeah, yeah, it's not even the father. 
Can you think of any other characters? Family ties. Family ties. Yeah, that's, a, uh, that's an interesting case because when that show came out, it inverted the formula. The parents were the rebels, right? They're these 60s activists. And then the son was the conservative one, right? Alex P. Keaton. And then he had the other siblings and such. Any other ups? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is that by design, in most sitcoms, the parents are designed to be dumber than the student, than the kids. Good. Because it's more interesting. I mean, it, you can make parents be interesting, right? Uh, but this is literally in the design. Okay. And there's some connection we can make to this one particular uh, scholar of mythology, Joseph Campbell, which if we want, we can talk about him. But then when the Cosby show came out, they, by design, inverted that formula by consciously making the parents sm smarter than the children. Okay. And so Bill Cosby, Mr. Huxtable, was, was one of the most positive father figures. Of course, then he had all this other stuff happen, you know, this other news that came out uh, recently. But he would literally have a psychiatrist evaluate every single show before they produced it to see the depictions of the families, and especially to see the depictions of African-Americans. So even think about it in terms of movies. Disney, especially. The vast majority of Disney movies are Disney princess movies. Star Wars, or Disney by Star Wars, and the last Star Wars movie is a Disney princess movie. Right? Literally. And what's the formula? There's a girl who wants to fulfill her life, but society's telling her you can't. And her father is always either the tyrant or is a fool. Jasmine's father is a fool, right? Most of the fathers are tyrants. And, and then she disobeys them, and she turns out to have made the right choice, and we all cheer for her. Okay? Saying this is by design. Okay? And why, and how does this connect to you? I mean, your point is fair that that's more interesting. But I'm saying you can make every single story, every single variation uh, interesting. Like, why is it that almost every depiction of Muslims is a terrorist? Yeah. I mean, we have plenty of interesting stories in our history, right? I mean, half of Indian movies are Layla and Majnoon told over and over and over again. But, yeah. so. but the point I'm making <coughs> is that when we have this, uh, uh, this culture in our society of opposing your parents, especially your fathers, and American media is telling the children you know, Islam is dangerous. Where are American children going to get interested? Okay. So that also has been taking place. That on the one hand, I'm watching this disintegration taking place among the Muslim populations. Okay. Uh, a great surge of non-Muslims who are interested in Islam. Okay. So about 20% of the people who visit me are non-Muslim. And some of these cases are actually kind of funny. I'll tell you one. And this will get into some of the other topics we'll explore. Uh, Pakistani girl dating a Hindu guy. Okay. And imagine, well, don't imagine, but I mean, the list of, imagine the list of, you know, inappropriate behaviors, haram behaviors. On his own, he gets interested in Islam. Okay. So she sends him to me. So, you know, we have discussions. I give him a book of Sirah, and I say, okay, read through this and challenge it any single way you can imagine, okay, and then come back and we'll discuss, okay? Meaning you're not going to be able to break Islam, 
So challenge it with your full intellect, your hamakilah. And so we'd have discussions about this moment, that moment. He started saying, okay, well, I'm looking at the Quraysh. My parents are the Quraysh. He's coming Hindu. And then Pakistani girlfriend starts texting me, how come he's spending all his time with you? I said, what do you expect? You sent him to me. Right. And then he starts asking me, because he gets, starts getting uh, interested in becoming Muslim, so he says he wants to learn how to pray. And his logic is fascinating. Right? He'll probably even listen to this recording at some point, inshallah. Uh, he says, one thing I like about Islam is that it gives you something to do. Okay. Like smoking marijuana. This is his language, right? Smoking marijuana gives you something to do. Islam gives you something to do. And so he wants to learn how to pray. He finds a website, asks me what I think of this website. Let's say it looks fine. And so then I say to him, okay, uh, why don't you try to learn al-Fatiha? Take your time, and then we'll build up to it. Next day he comes to me saying, okay, test me in the prayer. He memorized the whole prayer. Okay. He didn't yet have tashahud or durud, but he had everything else. And he's in my office going through all the steps. And then when he's getting ready to take his shahada, he asks, okay, what are some things I'm going to have to stop? I said, well, you're going to have to stop drinking at some point. Okay. And then he says, all the guys I drink with are Muslim. Okay. And he started coming to Juma, and he said, it's all the guys in the front row. I was getting hammered with them, his words, last Saturday. Okay. And I said, well, at least they're coming to Juma. Okay. So alhamdulillah for that, but you understand. Okay. They shouldn't be doing that, but at least they're coming to Juma. And so, alhamdulillah, he took his shahada. Okay. And he was even saying, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to stop drinking. And I said, right now, don't change anything. This is the advice that I usually give to non-Muslims, and this is also giving you a hint of the work of chaplaincy. Right now, don't change anything. He says, are you saying it's okay for me to drink? I said, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't change anything. Okay. And he said... I'm afraid that if I stop drinking, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do. I don't want to miss out on fun. St. Patrick's Day is coming. I said, right now, just don't change anything. Okay. Focus on your relationship with Allah. Focus on your relationship with the Prophet, peace be upon him. So he takes his shahada. It's just he and I. He didn't want to bring anyone else. We went to a nice place on the campus right from the lake. And as far as I know, since then, he hasn't been drinking. Okay. And then he started texting me saying now his Muslim friends are getting sick of him because he's telling them, okay, stop backbiting. Okay. Stop doing all this other stuff. And I said, okay, it's okay, let's talk about this more and figure things out. But what I'm saying on the one hand is that this is also taking place, all these people are getting interested in Islam, almost like there's a reversal happening. Okay. A disintegration of our community, yet other people are entering. Meaning, no da'wah is even happening. Okay. Donald Trump is doing most of our da'wah. Okay. In American style, meaning stay away from this, and so naturally Americans are going to flock to it. Okay. Yeah. But the big point to think about in terms of chaplaincy and pastoral care is how do you help a person get well? And what that usually means is that when they enter my office, my goal is that when they leave my office, they're in better shape. Okay? So I'm going to give you some scenarios. First, suppose you have a non-Muslim who comes to your office. Imagine your chaplain who does every haram, all of them. 
except for like murder, right? And <clears throat> wants to become Muslim and asks you, okay, what do I need to change right now? And let's even say it happens next week, this conversation. So a week before Ramadan. What would you tell that person that he or she has to do? How would you answer this question? Hey, don't change anything. Okay, that's oh, well. Maybe I've given you my answer already. What do you think? Are you going to tell that person you have to start making your prayers right now? Are you going to tell that person you have to make your fast? These are all fard. Sorry. Start reading the Quran. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's say they don't know anything, but. Something has told them, I want to become Muslim. So maybe start with Sira. Okay. okay. Or a translation of the Quran. Or translation. Okay. So with this person, I started him with Tariq Ramadan's uh, in the footsteps of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, I have some issues with the facts of that uh, of that book, but it is a good starter tafsir. Or not tafsir, Sira. Starter Sira. I have some some serious issues with the, the facts. Uh, and then now he's reading Halim's translation. Okay. And then he said he wanted to, he doesn't know what a tafsir is yet. He wanted to read about the meanings behind all these ayahs. And I said, not yet. First complete the whole translation. Okay. But the point to think about is not just with uh, new or new-ish Muslims, but with everyone, the conversation is not necessarily going to be about haram and halal that you'll have students coming to the office who are partaking of haram, who already know it's haram. And the question becomes, how do you bring them wellness? So what then are the common issues that students are coming with, to me with? Family problems, family breakdown. And as I've said, everything that non-Muslims have in their world, we have in our world. Okay. And we have a few extra things. Okay. And to really make this point of family breakdown, in theory, my job should not exist. Okay. And I was having a conversation with, with Soheb on the way here that, um, you know, many masjids will have gyms. Okay. Why? To bring in young people. Okay. Although I think it would be interesting if they used the gyms for the older people, try to make them, you know, play basketball and stuff. But, hey, Basketball, you know, right. Okay. <clears throat> but why is that? Because for whatever reason, the parents are not accomplishing what they need to accomplish with their children. A lot of times the parents just don't know. Yeah. Another point I want you to think about is American life is a very traumatic life. Compared to the rest of the world, it is paradise on earth. Right? But the experience in terms of what it does to your brain, to your mind, is trauma. Before getting into media, before getting into social media. I tell my students over and over again that social media is voluntary, willful, self-traumatization. All kinds of different ways. But the point being that a lot of times parents just don't know how to raise their kids. And a lot of times, in the same way that you and I in the same way that you and I are still learning about life, our parents are still learning about life. My older daughter, mashallah, she's 16. 
And I told her, just like you're learning how to be 16, I'm learning how to be 45. Like we often think, okay, our parents should have everything figured out. Okay. But then how does that play out? Uh, the masjid needs to have all these other side projects to bring people to the mosque, to bring young people to the mosque. And my job exists because students don't have a place to go to. Okay. Or because the house that they're growing up in is not a healthy environment. So family breakdown is, in some ways, the most common issue. Okay. Another is agnosticism, atheism. So a simple question, what's the difference between agnosticism and atheism? So atheism says no God, agnosticism says I don't know. Okay. And add anti-theism. Antitheism is when someone's hostile to religion. <coughs> so most of the popular atheists that we hear about, you know, Sam Harris is one of them, Bill Maher, the talk show host, is another one of them. For starters, I don't even know if any of these guys are really atheists. I think they're, this is what they're performing as. But they're speaking hostile to religion, that you have to be a fool to follow religion. Okay. But even those, I'm going to connect to family problems. So I've spoken about suicide. Another issue is esteem. It's self-esteem issues about who they are and self-esteem issues about Islam. So here's a question to think about. Imagine, okay, all of you mashallah are living life inside Islam. Which is easier, life inside Islam or life outside Islam? How would you answer that? So let's say tomorrow you leave the deen, which will give you an easier life? Okay, those of you who say outside, raise your hand. One vote. Okay, two, three, four, five. Okay, those who say inside, raise your hand. Interesting, mashallah. Okay, those of you who say outside, why? Why outside? You don't have to fight yourself okay. at all. You just go. Okay, so just live whatever way you want. Okay. Same opinion for those who are saying outside is easier? Those who, are you raising your hand? Yeah. Okay, so it's not talking about me anymore, it's talking about other people. Yeah, and then you can give it to all the desires you want. So whatever it is you want to do, ahlan, okay. Um, those of you who say inside Islam, what? Yes? Two reasons. Number one, I don't want to be Otello. Okay, translate what that means for all of us. Okay, that means uh, no matter what you do, there will be prejudice against you. Okay, so Yago is always going to go against you, okay? Okay. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I have access to an amazing network okay. of people. Okay. Physically, that's very good. Okay. That's, those are only the physical. So people. even better than the Masons, I get the Ummah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Inside or outside? Inside. Inside why? Um, direction. Okay. Okay, mashallah, yeah. Somebody else, yes in the back. Um, I think similar to what you were mentioning earlier, um, we were listening to the live streams of the, the, the clarity, uh -huh. um, the, you know, how you define spirituality or whatever. Yeah. And as well as um, what was said on the other side, just having that a frame of reference 
that you know I know is, is, mm -hmm. is you know divinely ordained, and mm -hmm. so anything that I come across in my life, whether it's a difficulty, whether it's something that's mm -hmm. good, whether it's an opinion that someone has, whatever it is, I just put it up against this, you know, uh, this ultimate metric, and mm -hmm. if, if it goes well, it goes well. If it doesn't, it doesn't, and that is you know has been invaluable. Okay. Okay. So it gives you a way on, on, on how to live. Okay. So in my experience, this could be anecdotal or this could be representative of the greater population. For college students, almost unanimously the answer is life outside Islam is easier. Why would they say that? So part of it is, okay, the imagination of less restrictions. Why else would they say that? They don't see the benefit. Okay. They're not taught to see the benefit. Okay that uh, many of them have gone through weekend schools. Many of them have gone through full-time Islamic schools. Okay. But remember, one point I suggested is that what Dean should give you is how to navigate life, and they're not being given that. That's supposed to happen, okay. That they're not being given tools on how to navigate life. Right. I mean, a simple way that I describe it to people is that, all right, which way is easier to live? eat and physically do whatever you want, or exercise and eat right. In the short term, eat, drink, do whatever you want is easier, and, but that's going to catch up with you. In the long term, eat right, exercise is going to be better for you. And imagine theme that way. Right? Short term struggle, long term benefit. Yes? But better for you is different than easier for you. Yeah. Is I, the question more um, like is being a Muslim I mean easier. Thank you for the correction. Uh, would you say that it would also be easier if, uh, uh, if I lived a life of eating right and exercising versus eating everything I want, all the hot, uh, flaming hot Cheetos, all the booze? You'd say, uh, I'd, I'd suggest that's easier in the short term. Yeah. But then it's going to catch up with me through my body. Please. If we're saying easier in the short term, yeah. Than yeah. Short term means just this world, just the dunya. I'm saying, uh, if I practice Islam, I'm suggesting in the long term in dunya, exactly. it'll be yeah, easier. It'll be easier. That's what I'm suggesting. Yeah. That's what I'm suggesting. It'll be like the story of the crow who painted himself white. Okay, tell tell us the story about the crow. Uh, there was a crow, once a crow, that always wanted to be a dove. Okay. And kind of like, so the crow is dark. Okay. So you're saying the crow wore, put on some fair and lovely. Yes. Fair and lovely, yes. <laughs> okay, keep going. Uh, yes. okay. Painted himself white. And he uh, went, this was a little like an Arabic story. Mm -hmm. really cute. Uh, he went to the doves. And they looked at him, and they thought his beak was too big. His feathers were white, but his beak was too big. Mm -hmm. So he realized he couldn't change his beak. Okay. Went back to his crows, and they told him, you're now white. Mm -hmm. You can no longer be a crow. Okay. And then he was left alone and died. Oh, so, oh okay. Yeah. So, I, was, I was hoping it would be like a happy ending, but <laughs> then he it died. Very, like, it was a yeah. eight-page little story, one line each page, little pictures. Nice one, okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But what do you think about my point? that I'm suggesting in dunya, in the long term, uh, my practice of Islam will make my life easier. What do you think? I thought the 
Okay, reflect on it. Because, like, Islam is all about, like, it's not easy. Okay. Is it? Okay. But doesn't Allah Ta'ala say in the ayah and fasting that he wishes for you ease, not hardship? But fasting is hard. Okay. Okay, fair but enough. Not fair. overwhelming hardship. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. Yes. I think in the Disney sense, um, it, like the ease is there, but in terms of like spiritually and on the inside, like I've seen a lot of people just kind of like fall apart okay. when they're on this easy road outside of Islam. Okay. Okay, okay. And your thoughts? Yes? I mean, even if you're just in life, talk about like, using the food example, like physically, like, sure, it might be easy to pick up a bag of chips, but like when you're suffering from a bunch of different illnesses, mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy. Okay. And so, would you say that practicing Islam in dunya will make my life easier? Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I already said inside Islam. Okay, okay. Yes. Um, I, I think to, to kind of uh, I can talk about that point because I think you, you, let's say you're in high school, right? And then you're doing whatever you want. You know, you don't have to. You're living outside of Islam, blah blah mm-hmm. blah. Everything is like easy. Mm-hmm. And then you start growing up, and you know all of these like standards of beauty that exist outside of Islam mm-hmm. are now starting to affect you and affect your self-esteem. Okay. And now you don't know how to deal with it. So now that becomes very hard. And, and having to deal with you know meeting these like arbitrary standards of beauty has proven very difficult for a lot of mm-hmm. people. Um, whereas maybe just like having having had prayed five times a day mm-hmm. relatively to that is much easier because that's just something that you have to do. Now if you okay. live inside of Islam, all of those standards of beauty, and I'm just using it for this example, they don't um, they they don't they don't stand up to the they, they don't stand up to the test, right? There's okay. no um, so living inside of Islam may have been more difficult in, in, in the short term like okay. you're suggesting but in the long term, some of the ideas that are, are actually more difficult and have um, deeper impacts on okay. you and your psyche and the way that you view yourself in the world, Islam actually makes that much easier. Okay. So okay. it's like, I feel it makes the more um, impactful fights okay. easier to, to, to go up against. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, no, yeah, does. Any uh, other views one way or the other? Yes. Yeah, so I think it makes it uh, easier because... In the long term, in dunya. Because inherently, Islam is insane to Okay. Whereas, um, if you don't have that, you like, we can't have any abstract understanding of what the pivotal would be. Mm. It only be divinely revealed. So, um, culture and other forms of meaning and lifestyle can't be as instinctive as the pivotal. Okay. So, so you're saying that it. So your point is that one thing Islam gives you is sort of an alternative against like these pressures of ideals and such, which we'll be getting to in just a second, inshallah. And you're saying that. It conforms you more to your fitra, therefore, in the long term, it's easier. Yes? Yeah, I think you asked me five years ago, what it said living outside. Okay. That had to do with my exposure to each one, right? So okay. Living outside meant partying and kind of doing whatever you want, mm-hmm. which seems great. And then your exposure to Islam at that point is like haram, halal, like very strict. Okay. Why would I want to enter into that? Mm-hmm. I think as you kind of experience what it truly means to live inside and you benefit from it, like the clarity it gives you. And mm-hmm. All those good things, the fruits of it, then you kind of have this other view of the outside where it's actually depression and you're doing all those things to fill some sort of void. Okay. And I think a lot of people, maybe on college campuses now, haven't experienced 
the fruits of living within it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're kind of like, well, it's easier just to kind of live out. Okay. Of it. Your thoughts? I'm going to suggest, in my experience, <laughs> when it comes to being hit with struggle, the two populations, again, this is just my experience, could not be, it may or may not be representative of the whole. The two populations that do the best in dealing with struggle are Muslims and Christians. And the population that does the worst is atheists, especially if the struggle is a death in the family. Good. That when you're hit with struggle, in my experience, for all the difficulty a Muslim goes through, a Christian goes through, they still fare way better, way, way better than the common atheist, in my experience. What would be possible reasons why? Well, as an atheist, you have no belief in anything after, so there's no sort of, like, um, there's nothing that you're hoping for after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I'm saying that there's no God, and especially if I'm saying there's no hereafter, then if I'm being honest about my atheism, if I'm being honest about my atheism, then I have to admit that in the end, I'm nothing more than fertilizer, right? Which then also means if I do humanitarian work my whole life and I find cures for diseases, If the end result is that I'm fertilizer and I have no memory of anything that I've done because I'm gone, then it doesn't matter if I live that life or if I committed genocide. In the end, I'm gone. Right? If you're being honest. If I'm being honest. My experience, most atheists are not being honest. To its full conclusion. And so what I'm suggesting is that Because in Islam and Christianity especially, there's a view, there's belief that there is something bigger beyond this dunyawi life, automatically that actually makes our life easier and we don't even realize it, right? So I'm saying, uh, in my own experience, Salah makes my life easier, okay? Uh, But I don't think that's true for a lot of Muslims, right? I think for a lot of Muslims it's actually struggle. Like, I have, to, I have to fast and fast and fast. I have to pray and pray and pray. And an example of this is that uh, now, mashallah, my, my schedule is much lighter. But uh, in, in the years since 9-11, you know, I've been getting called all over Chicago to give talks, right? And I'm not saying this to boast or anything, but I'll accept our efforts. Like, the year after 9-11, it was probably about 30 talks, 50 talks a year. Then it went up to 200. Then it went up to 500. And around, around 2010... No exaggeration, I was doing about 1,000 talks a year. Okay? And do the math. That's like three a day, but in fact, it's more like seven or eight on Saturday, Sunday, and Friday. Right? Uh, and when I was in that level of intensity, I'd have maybe one day off in a month. Okay? And I couldn't wait to get to that day. It's like, let me just get to that day. Okay? And then I'd get to that day, and I'd just sleep. Okay? And... Everyone around me would say, you just seem so exhausted. Okay? Then I tried a different strategy. Let me make each of my salahs my vacation from life. Okay? Where it's just me and Allah Ta'ala. Meaning, I don't care what happens for these 
five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, three minutes, 20 minutes, I'm not going to care about anything. It's just me and Allah Ta'ala. I'm taking vacation from life. And my energy level skyrocketed. You know, like the teaching of the Prophet ﷺ when he says, you know, what do you have to say about someone who bathes in a river five times a day? They're going to be completely clean, spotless. This is what Salah does to you in terms of your sins. And I'm saying this is what also it does to your exhaustion. When you're taking a break from life five times a day. So I'm saying in my case, I do believe Salah makes my life significantly easier. But I think for the vast majority of people in our community, no, it's a big, heavy struggle. Right? And so I'd say that in the consciousness of most of us in our society, yeah, Islam still is harder than everything else. Okay? But we don't notice the actual benefit that it's giving us because we don't see what it's like on the outside. Okay. And I'd say, I mean, and this is purely anecdotal, Muslims and Christians tend to be at the top of the list of people who can deal with struggle, even if they're not usually that religious. Okay? And at the bottom, like I said, are atheists, and Jews and Hindus, in my experience, also tend to be closer to the bottom, for whatever various reasons. Okay. Uh, but we tend to do the best if it's only because we believe that there's something bigger. So <clears throat> this I'm connecting to the issue of esteem, that when you're being raised as Muslim in this society, I think you're being conditioned to have low self-esteem about who you are. When I was a Muslim kid growing up in Chicago, the mainstream heroes, my heroes, were Muslims. Meaning this is the 70s. The most famous boxer in the world was still active, Muhammad Ali. He was Muslim, and he was known for being Muslim. In the latter part, in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was my favorite basketball player. He was winning championship after championship, except when the Boston Celtics would beat him. And he was also outspoken about being Muslim, mainstream figure. And I'm from Chicago, city of Michael Jordan. And I say openly that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is probably the only person who can uh, compete with Michael Jordan and claiming to be the greatest basketball player of all time. How many of you are LeBron fans? Anybody? I just want to see how many mothers of people raise their hand. Anyway, so, so, yeah. So, uh, so I had these mainstream heroes. And part of the conditioning that that was giving to me that my parents would also take advantage of is that you have to be the best, pointing to these people because that was, that's what Muslims are supposed to do. And I'm from Chicago. In the 1970s, the Sears Tower was just built. For the longest time, that was the tallest building in the world. John Hancock was built. Both of these were designed by a Muslim guy, Fazlur Khan. Okay. And so that was the conditioning that I was given and many people from my generation were given. Okay. Now... The common college student right now has no memory of 9-11, but has been compelled, has been forced to live in the shadow of 9-11. When I was growing up, the enemy were the Russians, and the movies were about the Vietnamese, okay, like Rambo, things like that. But now, as you all well know, for the entire life, conscious life of a common college student, America has been at war with Muslims. So think of what those two things do to your consciousness as you're growing up and add to the fact that there are not mainstream heroes of that status. We do have, like the football players here, right? What's his name? Hussein, Hussein Abdullah. Uh, we do have Ibtihaj Muhammad. Good. Uh, but I'd still suggest they're not 
mainstream. They're in mainstream industries, but everybody knew who Muhammad Ali was. Right? I'd say outside the Muslim community, outside of fencing, most people don't know who Ibn Taj Muhammad is. Okay. Um, Mashallah, she's doing very good in terms of PR for the Muslim community. But I'm suggesting that uh, the common 20-year-old right now does not have mainstream heroes. Even Hakim, right, was a huge mainstream hero, even more than Curry. You know, Hakim was fasting during the finals, you know, way back in the 90s. So, <clears throat> so what I'm suggesting is that there's multiple forces that are giving young people a low self-esteem about being Muslim. Yes? Do you think the uh, family issues that you were suggesting earlier play a lot to the self-esteem thing? Absolutely. How would you suggest it? Because it sounded like your answer was yes. Uh, I, I, I mean, I... Um, I mean, it, it, it's a, a lot of what you were saying, just how, you know, the, the, young, the, the younger generation, like the college kids are um, learning how to be college kids in America, Muslim or whatever, mm -hmm. um, especially ones with immigrant parents, um, their immigrant parents are trying to learn how to be mm -hmm. parents in, 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 in a Western context, mm -hmm. um, it, and it, it's just, it's, you know, it, it, there, it's a galaxy of a difference mm -hmm. between the, the world that they were raised mm -hmm. in and the world that they're trying to raise their totally. kids in. Um, mm -hmm. And then and a big part of it is, I, I mean, from what I, like, where a lot of the you know, immigrant parents grew up and stuff like that, the whole neighborhood raised the kids. Mm -hmm. That's why they were able to have mm -hmm. 10, 12, 15 kids or whatever. Because everyone was involved, there was cousins, there was grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, and if self-esteem didn't come from the parents, it may have come from the uncle mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, now that's not the case anymore, so that's an issue that I've mm -hmm. personally seen a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I say so there's some truth to that. Uh, a simple question. Um, I'm assuming were all of you raised Muslim? Anybody not? Okay. What were you before? Uh, I was raised atheist. Okay, fascinating. Okay. And so, uh, did any of you, uh, including yourself, uh, did any of you have Christmas trees when you were growing up in your house? Yeah, you did, even though you're atheist. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you know Muslims who have Christmas trees? Okay, okay. Uh, how many Muslims do you know do Valentine's Day? Yeah. Now that number skyrockets, right? I mean, they're doing Valentine's Day all over the world now. Saint Valentine's Day is taking place all over the world. It's, he's Saint Valentine. Don, don, don. Yeah. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of people try to say, well, we're not really celebrating Valentine's Day. We're just showing love for our husband and wife. Yeah, so are the boyfriend, girlfriend, Muslims on campus, too. Yeah, that's uh, um, And so a common question, so I also used to run a full-time, uh, or I used to run a Sunday school. Yeah. And a common question that I get from the parents is, can we have Christmas trees? Okay. And I'd ask them why. And the, uh, what would be the argument what, what, what parents would give? So let's say it's not a religious thing. What else? Everyone's doing it. You know, we didn't want our kids to be left out. And then the other big reason would be, you know, we want our kids to be exposed to everything. Okay. So as far as to the exposed to everything question, I'd ask them, are you also going to do a menorah for Hanukkah? And they're like, uh, uh, no. Are you going to do Diwali? Uh, uh, no. So then it's not, we want to expose our kids to everything. Right? Or likewise, should we tell our kids, you're an American? What do you think? Should we tell our kids that? Why or why not? What do you mean by that? Like, okay. With a very different intonation. 
Okay, so give me this intonation. Like, American? Like, what is it in this intonation you mean? You, you're American. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you had to also see, he's like, you're American. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you're saying should, because then it'll give you a sense of responsibility. Okay, yes? Um, I would say should also because it gives you a sense of like your rights and like your belongings. Okay, so not just responsibility, your rights. Okay, what else? What are your thoughts? Should we tell our children uh, that you're an American or should we not? I think it depends what you mean by American. Okay, so what do you hear? So when I hear American, I grew up in Syria. Okay, okay. What part of Syria? Uh, Damascus. Okay, nice. And um, when I hear America, I think you know, imperialism. Okay. I think uh, injustice. Okay. I think racism. I think uh, all sorts of horrible things. <coughs> but I also think about the Wright brothers. I also okay. think about uh, all the scientific discoveries that happened here. I okay. also think about the Constitution, uh, mm -hmm. the good. Um, a good document, a very good, amazing document. Mm -hmm. But I put all of those. Like, I know I'm talking like a It was like. No one can criticize that anymore. Uh, so I think of all of these things put together. Yeah. And when I say I am born in the States, but not particularly proud of everything in America, okay. that's who I think of myself. I happened to move a lot when I was a kid. I okay. moved around probably 10 schools, okay. five different countries. Across, oh, countries, okay. Yeah. Never ended up saying the Pledge of Allegiance to any country because okay. they say it at different rates at different places. Okay. So I think it's also part of me, particularly me as okay. an individual, that no, this is not my identity. Okay. My identity is a Muslim. I am Muslim. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes. I say yes. That, oh, you know, you know, Azar Osman's joke about being uh, patriotic? He goes, I love America so much, I would die for this country by blowing myself up. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say yes. Um, yes, we should uh, teach um, our kids to be American. Yeah, but like, you're Muslim first. Okay. Um, then American. Okay. And you yeah. can be both. It's not like one or the other. Okay, because that's going to ask, it almost sounds like the two would conflict. Okay. Yes? Okay. Not in a boastful way or that it gives him some kind of advantage over someone mm -hmm. else. Yeah. But I think more so, um, so when he does go out in the real world, nobody else can tell him that he does not, that he does not belong. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So this is you and no one can tell you otherwise. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Going back to what you said, because I was in sixth grade when I was happy, mm. and that was like, that, that was like when I first discovered this idea of like, Identity, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it's important that we teach our kids that you know they are Americans because ideas belong to me, especially for Muslim women, you know. And even now, like, like guys too, because everyone's trying to tell us that we don't belong here, that mm -hmm. this isn't like go back to our country, but it's like this is our country, this is what we know, this is where we grew up, and not like 
and, and the definition of American also depends, you know, okay. how you define it. But I, I think it's important that you emphasize that you are Muslim first, but you're also an American in the sense not like the, you know, Christmas tree celebrating mm -hmm. American, but like, you know, like the one who values freedom, the one who values education, you know, like, like those things. Okay. And, and also like the culture, the, the cultural context that we grew up in. Okay, okay. So, so similar to this point that there are uh, some positive aspects that you'll definitely embrace. Uh, not necessarily others, but me not embracing these others doesn't mean I'm less of an American. Okay. Yes? I was just a comment. I just think it's interesting that when we have these conversations about America, like everyone's like very antsy, not everyone, but a lot of people are like very like hesitant about whatever like negative portrayals or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, issues we have with American society, but we like doesn't, we don't hesitate to like claim our, um, like where our parents came from, like um, Indian, I'm Egyptian, like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I mean, I have no problem saying I'm Egyptian, but there are tons of things Egyptians do that I don't mm -hmm. like, or Egypt as a country, like where to begin, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's like when it comes to America, it's interesting that we have this like kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. Like I don't really know, but it's like, I mean, if you're born and raised here, what else are you? Mm -hmm. This is uh, so. So you're basically saying, okay, there's this strange inconsistency that we don't feel the need to qualify being Egyptian, being Pakistani. Um, are there any Indians here? Yes. It's okay. No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but we do feel the need to qualify being American. Okay. Yes. A lot of that came from maybe our immigrant parents coming to this country and then feeling like they were guests okay. in, a, in a different nation. So mm -hmm. they had to kind of be on their best behavior to model citizens mm -hmm. coming back home. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we grew up with that mentality, and now we haven't had enough confidence to kind of claim that identity for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And because I think when we're, we're kind of tiptoeing around being American and saying that being American is being complicit of everything that they do mm -hmm. and not being critical of society and not being critical of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But I can criticize all those things because, because I am American. Mm -hmm. right? So I don't, I don't think, I think we should be more confident who we are and okay. embrace that part of our identity. Okay, yes. I think to the point that the sister said, I think, like, for example, like when I say like I'm Syrian, I don't align myself with the Syrian government. I align myself with ethnicity. Okay. But there is no American ethnicity. So okay. when I say I'm American, I don't think of like an ethnic cultural thing. I think of like the institutions and mm -hmm. the practices and the history. Um, and so that usually people are more hesitant to mm -hmm. hold. And here I think we're tapping into why there's this need for qualification. That in most of the states across the world, it's an ethnic, it's an ethnicity. It might be a combination of ethnicities, especially for a majority population. Okay. Uh, but then you have the European settler states, okay. Canada, United States, Australia, Israel, right? Uh, European settler states uh, where they are ideological, right? So America is an ideological state. That's why when we think of America, we think of the Constitution. It's an ideological document. Okay. Yes, you think of all those other things, yeah, right? Uh, exactly. And so I still think it's a very consistent point <coughs> that, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that are done by, by you know, our various overseas Muslim-majority governments that are, that are, to put it politely, horrible, right? But we don't feel the need to qualify them because it's also assumed 
but we do need to feel the, feel the qualified. And part of it I'm also suggesting is because America is consciously an ideological state. It is an agnostic state, meaning if you are raised in America, you will be more agnostic than you realize. Right? You may identify with religion. You may practice your religion, and we'll come back to this point, but America is an ideological state. And when I was growing up, nobody told me. Right? When you're also telling your child uh, about being an American, you're also raising it as a point. And I do think that, yeah, maybe it's more necessary now, so no one else can say otherwise. But nobody, when I was a kid, told me that I'm an American. No one told me until I was older when they asked me, do you feel like a conflict between being American and being Muslim? And I thought, the question never came up to me. Other of my peers who grew up in different parts of Chicago, different communities, so I grew up in the south side of Chicago. Not as many Desis, not as many Muslims. Okay? Most of the Muslims were actually black American, but we had a masjid that was you know, a whole mix of people. But most of the Desis were in the north side of Chicago, Devon Avenue and such, and then eventually migrated to other parts, and the Arabs were in the southwest and so forth and so on. There, there was much more of this conversation. Okay? But nobody told me it's a thing, and so I never had a thought that there was a conflict. I'm me. If anything, I'm Chicagoan, because I had cousins in St. Louis and New York and wherever else, and so we were always in competition with each other, especially our sports teams. You're raising your hand. Okay. But think about this. So now the next question, because the overall point we're talking about is America in terms of ideals and Muslim esteem. Uh, how many of you consider yourself Western? Okay, yes. Would any of you not consider yourself Western? Why? Okay, which is? Sure, sure. But it's, it's there. Like, it's kind of like how Orientalism, mm -hmm. you know, developed, like, that term. Okay. It's the same thing. It's like, you know, the opposite of Orientalism. Okay. Okay. That, that's how I see it. Okay. Yes. I feel like, uh, speaking personally, like, I've undoubtedly been influenced by Western thought mm -hmm. and culture. But every time you engage with, you know, Western society, culture, academics, whatever it is, I always feel like the other in the narrative rather than identifying with the. Okay. Mm hmm So, so. Sort of like, you just feel like that's how. Um, a little both, I guess, more recently conscious, but just even like from like a younger age, or okay. just like, I feel like the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Are you Western? Uh, you said you're Western. Why? Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, I was just, when I think of Western, I think of cowboy boots. Okay. And uh, I feel okay. like that sort of resonates with my... Uh, <laughs> okay. It wasn't an ideological anything. Okay. Well, yeah, I intentionally didn't say, like, what is Western? So, uh, who else said you are or not? Are you or are, are not? I think I am. Okay, why? When I go to the East, I don't fit in. Ah, okay. So you fit in more here than you do in the East. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yes? I've never thought about that. But okay. I think thinking about it now, I definitely am more Western. Okay. And again, yeah, I don't think I fit in, but kind of like going back to Islam and what that means, like this concept of, I think that of all the countries in the world, we can practice it most freely and do its highest capacity here. Okay. More than a lot of other Muslims. So, like, right here, um, I can establish the caliphate and everything. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, like when you and our countries back home, there's a lot of racism. Uh -huh. And, and there's no racism lack, here. Lack of social order, 
Like people come to your mind, things like that, where you have you have that here. At least uh-huh. if you're doing it, you do it, right? You uh-huh. can go in the direction. Okay. Uh, but there are communities here and that do kind of have that. Okay. At least in my experience going back and visiting, I've never been to Pakistan, but at least Saudi uh-huh. Arabia, uh-huh. Um, you kind of see like the other side of that. Okay. Like, uh, I don't want that. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Uh, Am or am not Western. How would you identify yourself and why? Yes. Uh, I just want to like plus one sentence comment. Or Who, who's Sammy? Oh, okay. So yeah, I should have guessed. You look like a Sammy, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. I think it depends on who asks. Okay. For me, like if I'm in India or Pakistan, it would be a different answer if I'm talking to someone who's American, non-Muslim, and how they're seeing me and I say it differently. Okay. So let's say you're walking down the street. Uh, what part of the subcontinent are you from? Yeah, from India. And like where in India are you from? Um, North India. Okay, so like UP or something? Or where? Uh, from uh, Bihar. Oh, my countrywoman. So, 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 yeah, so my family's Bihari. This is a totally random point. I was on the bus once, and this Desi guy sits next to me. And he goes, where are you from? I go, you know, I was born in Karachi, but my family's Bihari. And he says, I have the solution for the Kashmir crisis. Okay? This is where? On the bus. Where? Chicago. Okay. Yeah. And he goes, India should give Kashmir to Pakistan on condition they also take Bihar. Okay. And then he goes, most corrupt state in the world. This is like his first conversation with me, right? Yeah. In any case, okay, so let's say, so like in Bihar. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, like, where in Bihar is your family from? From, like, Patna City or something? Or? Yeah, but, I mean, we, my, my maternal side is in Calcutta. Okay. So we okay. Don't, I don't really like going to Patna. It's not one of those things. Like, <laughs> I haven't been there like 40 years ago. Yeah. Okay, so let's say you're walking through the streets in Calcutta, and some random person walks up to you and said, Hey, Western here? How would you answer that question? Are you Western? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I would. But I mean, I visit, you know, like, I mean, and I don't even think, I mean, I think they know that you're not from there when you're there and stuff, but I think sometimes, like, over here, there's a, just, a again, like, I think one of the brothers says is that there's so many derogatory um, uh-huh. connotations to being from the, because of, I think, our immigrant parents, mm-hmm. there's just so many derogatory things about them not losing their cultural identity. Mm-hmm. So they've embedded it in us that you're not Western, mm-hmm. like, you know. You know. So I think that's why. Actually, I really don't know how to like what the right answer sure. for that is. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yes. So I, I think I have a better answer now. Okay. With it's like a combination of what Sister Rahula said and mm-hmm. Danny said, where like if I'm talking to people who are from, you know, where my parents are, you know. Where's your family from? Bombay. Okay. So. Then, yeah, like, it's interesting you say Calcutta and Bombay, you don't say Kolkata and Mumbai. Fascinating. Okay. Americans. People in Bombay have been like, then yeah, I'm considered Western. You know? Okay. And I'm the other. But do you consider yourself Western if you're in Bombay? Yeah, probably okay. most likely. But here in this context, like what Sammy said, you're the other mm-hmm. and you're not Western in this society. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really consider myself Western here. Uh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yes. Um, 
I think it, it's, it's a question like um, it brings up a lot of like interesting conflicts. Like I think because we're all like a little bit because I mean for me like I think you must there has to be an admittance and like an understanding of what the West has mm -hmm. done to the East. Mm -hmm. There are very real things that happen, um, and the consequences of and ramifications of those things were very real, and like, mm -hmm. we're still feeling them. And a okay. lot of the issues that we're talking about today, and like even like the, the 9-11 issue, and like all of these things that you brought mm -hmm. up earlier, a lot of them have get tied back to the ramifications of what the West has done in the East, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. imperialism, colonialism, mm -hmm. uh, the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. whatever, like, and the list goes on and on. Okay. Um, so, and then it gets kind of weird, because I think as a part of our identity, we have to know that those things happen, we have to know that they were bad things, and we mm -hmm. have to know that we have those wounds in order for them to heal, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, we grew up in that same hope, so it's like we are a part of the culture, I guess, or of the people that we also, that also damaged us and, mm -hmm. like, you know, wreaked havoc um, in our places of origin. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it creates, like, a really, I don't know, for me, it's just a weird thing. It's like, I'm necessarily Western, mm -hmm. because this is where I, like, like, Sam, like, a lot of people, like, it, it had, an, it, like, I grew up here, like, there's no way, like, I like rap music, mm -hmm. like, the, I'm from the West, but... Um, at the same time, like, I, I hate, like, I, there's, they, they did evil things. And that's not to say that other parts of the mm -hmm. world didn't, but this is just most recent. And they did it to, like, you know, like, our, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, a country like America is, like, it's been in, at war mm -hmm. for the majority of its mm -hmm. existence as a country. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there's, there's, and then you go to Britain before that and, like, what it's done to the subcontinent, mm -hmm. to the Middle East or whatever. And it's not in, like, the kind of, like, the old Arab uncle way of, like, the Jews did everything, it's all the Jews' fault, it's uh -huh. all the West's fault. Yeah. No, that's not, that's an extreme, but mm -hmm. the other extreme is kind of ignoring it and, like, being like, yeah, you know, the West is the West, it's cool, but, you know, we're all, you know, we're being very comfortable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I realize that we should probably be taking a break on the schedule, but let's uh, uh, let's uh, at least get everyone's hands. Yeah. I uh, just uh, also to go off that point. Um, I feel like a lot of times that kind of um, when we say the West has done all these things, a lot of times it's not from a place of like remorse, but like an accusation. So it's okay. Like, what does that mean? Like they did all these things wrong. Like we gotta hold them responsible. Mm -hmm. Not like wow, like, we messed up. We gotta change this. So that's mm -hmm. like another part of that consciousness. Okay. But then also it's like what Bill was saying in the beginning class with the love story. Like, I don't know if I also feel Eastern either. Like, maybe mm -hmm. I was growing up in the East, I would also feel the same thing. Like, I would mm -hmm. fit in here. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like this, I'm not this or that. Mm -hmm. it, it's very conscious when you're living here. Like, I obviously don't fit in a lot of respects here. Mm -hmm. If I was living, you know, like, Bay or wherever that is, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd fit in there either. Mm -hmm. Yes? I wanted to touch on a, an expression or a fragment of the sentence that, yeah. that I was yeah. we are part of society. Okay. I think we are embedded in society. Okay. Not necessarily part of society. Okay. We're only 3% of the population, okay. if you count like the most low estimates. Mm -hmm. um, we are not a, we're not a like fundamental core component. Like okay. all the Muslims in America were killed tomorrow. Uh -huh. America would suffer marginally. I mean, all the physicians, all the cab drivers, and then, you know. All, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but like they would, they could be replaced. Mm -hmm. Sure, it's going to be 
something is not a catastrophic. Problem. That's how Chicago is. I don't know if it's the same. Also, in Chicago, all the Dunkin' Donuts subways and. <laughs> and okay, yeah. okay, maybe yeah. it is a catastrophic yeah. thing. When yeah. you throw Dunkin' Donuts into it, huh? like I, uh, when I go to. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has family that, that uh, is or works in Dunkin' Donuts. Like when I go to Dunkin' Donuts outside of Chicago, I look to see if anybody looks like my family members. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, we're, we're, sure, we are that 3%. We do our thing. We're in the higher levels of society in terms of higher pay and mm -hmm. higher education. Sure. But we're only 3%. We're okay. not part of our society. We're okay. embedded in the society. Okay, interesting. Uh, yes, might be hard, sister. You're raising your hand. I was saying, what do you say when people ask you where you're from? Uh, my job is not to answer the questions. My job is to ask. Uh, I'll, I'll give you answers also, inshallah, after the break. Yes. Uh, I just, I just wanted to make a quick comment. Just add a complication to this. Also, like the Black American. Community. Uh huh. I'm half Black, so that means Which half? Even, um, I was going to ask, like left or right, but oh, what part of Chicago? You know. Um, Hyde Park. Really. Is she my age? Like, yes, but she hasn't really lived in Chicago for long now. Okay, okay, yeah. interesting. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I, I lived so in Hyde Park for a little while, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of times we have this conversation about Muslim ideas too. We think about immigrant, non -im or, um, mm -hmm. like immigrant parents and then us being first generation, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many American Muslims who don't have a choice but are always for part of this. Yeah, that's a very, very important point. Okay, um, let's pause, and I think we, we oh, I don't know, does anybody know what to do with this delivery? Okay. So uh, let's pause right here, and I think we reconvene at 1130, uh, according to whatever the schedule is. All right, well, after that one, alhamdulillah. Come on, make that.